for your Bibles. We're in Psalm 96 this evening. The Messiah is coming to judge. Uh, psalm 96 is a messianic uh, psalm in, in this sense. A central truth in the gospel is found in the Old Testament scriptures is that the Lord is going to ultimately reveal himself in the person of the Messiah. Over and over in the Old Testament scriptures, we see it being prophesied that the Lord is coming to reign. And we see the Lord as emphasized as Yahweh, uh, all capitals. Uh, the word Yahweh often translated that way in, in many translations, including my, my new King James. So we know that the, the one who is coming to reign is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as the book of Revelation in 19 says, uh, comes as as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, Psalm 96 has no heading, officially. Uh, no author officially um, is in view. It's not attributed to any particular person. However, with only a few minor variations, it essentially is a reiteration of the psalm that David composed for the honor of the ark being brought up to Jerusalem, as seen in 1 Chronicles 16. So Psalm 96 mirrors the text of 1 Chronicles 16, 23 through 33. And because of this, many scholars believe that indeed David is most probably the author of it. In fact, uh, the Jews attributed it to David as seen in the heading of the LXX, which was the, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. William MacDonald says at least 17 different ways of praising the Lord given in the form of crisp, crisp commands are found in Psalm 96. So it's full of praise. Uh, the psalm has three sections, each beginning with a command such as sing in verses 1 through 3, uh, give in verses 7 through 9, and say in verses 10 through 13. Each section has the whole world in view, as seen in all the earth, verse 1, families of the peoples in verse 7, and the world in verse 13. Charles Ryrie says, the psalm is messianic in the sense that the future rule of God spoken of will be fulfilled in the rule of the Messiah, who is the son of David, the son of God. Uh, so note on the overhead, uh, the outline here. Uh, first, uh, the theme is the celebration of the Lord's coming. But then in verses 1 through 3, a new song for all the earth. Verses 4 through 6, why God deserves all praise. 7 through 9, ascribe to God the glory due him. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And 11 through 13, a celebration of joy for all creation. So let's begin a new song for all the earth, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Now, when God does something gloriously new, it calls for a new song. Uh, this entire psalm builds to and anticipates the coming kingdom reign over all the nations. And this calls for a new celebratory song at its inauguration. Singing denotes joy. Now, we have a singing faith. Uh, we see this numerous times in the scriptures, certainly all the way through the Psalms. And this is truly joy to the world, the Lord is come. Although that really is the next Psalm. Uh, Isaac Watts really got that out of Psalm 97, which is also a Messianic Psalm, which is where we'll go after this. But this too is joy to the world, the Lord is come. Uh, 
The whole earth is called to, on to sing His praises. We find as Jesus takes the scroll in Revelation 5, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, the title deed of the earth, and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So heaven at this point is thinking about what's coming. Uh, Jesus takes the title deed of the earth, and as they are with him, he is coming to reign, and they are too going uh, to reign on the earth. Verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. I think there's a lot of application here, right? Uh, sing to the Lord. We do that almost every time we come together. Uh, bless his name, which is the idea of praising him. And proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Day by day, we should be proclaiming his salvation. Now, three times in verses 1 and 2, the whole earth is called on to sing to the Lord. To bless his name, as I say, is to praise him. And all are called on to proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. God is a God of salvation. Salvation means deliverance. Now, we praise him first and foremost for deliverance from the penalty of sin. I mean, this is the ultimate issue, uh, deliverance from the penalty of sin. But this uh, here, in the, as we look at this psalm and, and where it builds, it looks forward to kingdom deliverance. You know, we're praying... Uh, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We're looking for him to come and bring deliverance, uh, ultimate uh, redemption for us in terms of glorification and, and the kingdom and, and the curse being removed from the earth and all that's involved there. Today, we're preaching the gospel of Christ and anticipate the gospel of the kingdom. We've been delivered, and yet the great deliverance into the kingdom yet awaits. But the greatness of God's salvation is to be proclaimed from day to day. From day to day means we should never stop proclaiming it. Uh, it is wonderful every day. You know, other forms of good news, uh, at first hearing, uh, they delight us, perhaps. But God's salvation never gets old. And is to be proclaimed day after day after day. Constantly, the emphasis is to be on the proclamation of His salvation. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. So we are to declare uh, God's glory. The glory of his salvation is the context here, among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. God's glory refers to that which is weighty or impressive. And God wants the wonder of his salvation to be taken to everyone. Now, in the Abrahamic covenant, uh, notice... Uh, the emphasis here where it talks about his wonders among all peoples. So I say, in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised that in, in him, that is in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This message has application for everyone. Uh, note here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In the Great Commission... The goal is to make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when the church is gone, the goal in the tribulation uh, will be to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and it will be accomplished. 
Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world uh, as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Revelation 14, 6, context of the tribulation period. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So God wants his message of his salvation to go forth to the entire world. That's clear all across the board. Um, Old Testament, New Testament emphasis. God says, I want the message out there. I want it to be taken uh, to all the peoples. He wants them to know. In order for uh, that to happen, God wants to work through his people who proclaim it and declare it. Now, we're not responsible for people what they do with the message, but we are responsible to get it out. Verses 4 through 6, why God deserves all praise. Verse 4, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Here's why we proclaim the message and declare his glory. Because Yahweh, the Lord, is great, and therefore to be greatly praised and reverenced. Now, when it says uh, he is to be feared, uh, to fear him is to reverence him. That's the idea, is to reverence him. And he is to be feared or reverenced above all gods because, in truth, they are all false gods. As the next verse goes on to show, verse 5, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. Yeah, that's what they are. But the Lord made the heavens. So the gods of the peoples are not to be feared. Because, in fact, they are mere idols. Now, the word idol here literally means nothings. They're idols. They're nothings. These gods are no gods at all. In truth, they are nothings, or as it is sometimes translated, vain things. This same word is sometimes translated as worthless. Idols are worthless nothings. I like the note in the ESV study Bible at this point. The words gods and worthless idols sound alike, providing a play on words. In English, this would be close to, these mighty beings are mighty useless. <laughs> That's pretty good. And we know, uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other god but one. So idols are nothings. Uh, they are not gods at all. Now, a footnote here. Although an idol is nothing, and there is no other true God but, but the one true God of the Bible, still, there are real demons who are behind idolatry. An idol is nothing, but demons are real, and they are masters at deception, working their wares in relationship to idolatry. And Paul brings this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says there, uh, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? And the expected answer is no. An idol isn't anything and what's offered to idols is, is you know, of no consequence. But here's the point. Rather the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So he says, I don't want you to be involved in this. Yeah, an idol is nothing. In and of itself. But there is demonic activity in relationship to idolatry. 
In contrast to the worthless nothings that are idols is the Lord who made the heavens. He is the creator of all. He's a living God. He is active. He moves. I like what Henry Morris says. I don't know if you ever thought about this. But Henry Morris said, one of the descriptive terms that the creator applied to living creatures was movement. The Hebrew word is ramas, used 17 times in the Old Testament, never about plants or vegetation of any kind. Living things move. You know, one of the fascinating things about life is movement. Uh, Life and movement go together. Uh, When something is dead, it doesn't move, right? I mean, if you see a dead thing moving, you might want to reconsider whether it's really dead, right? I mean, dead things don't move. So behind all movement, there must be life. And the Bible is clear that this life ultimately is the living God. We might call him the moving God. He's the ultimate mover behind all movement. As such, uh, sometimes he is called the unmoved mover. I mean, everything else moves because something causes it to move. What causes God to move? Well, he just is. He is the I am. Uh, He's the uncaused cause of all. Idols are nothings. They don't do anything. I mean... You talk about the blindness and the power of Satan to to have people believe in idolatry. They're nothings. They don't move, right? For crying out loud, that should be so obvious. Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths. Nice mouth. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. I mean, what do these idols do? And why are you worshiping this thing? It doesn't do, it doesn't move. It doesn't do anything. In contrast is the moving living God who is the creator. He is the living God who is still moving. And I always like uh, John 3, 8 in relationship to this emphasis, which says the wind blows where it wishes. When I, I, always, I sometimes just like to sit and listen to the wind. I know people think I'm a little weird, and it's probably true. But, uh, you know, it reminds me of movement, and behind movement is the mover, the living God. Uh, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit moves because He is the living God. And those of us born of the Spirit have known His moving. Uh, He is not only our physical creator, but as born-again Christians, we are now new creations in Christ. The living God moves, and he has moved in our lives, and has forever changed us. Verse 6, honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The Holman Christian Study Bible says, four descriptive nouns, splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty, are personified as being divine escorts preceding the Lord's processional entrance into the temple. Kind of a beautiful picture. Charles Spurgeon said, In him are combined all that is mighty and lovely, powerful and resplendent. And Derek Kinder says, If we ask whether the sanctuary is earthly or heavenly, the probable answer is both. 
The earthly one was a copy and shadow of the heavenly, Hebrews 8.5. So in light of this great God and the descriptive uh, terms that are used to uh, describe him, uh, therefore ascribe to God the glory due him. That's the emphasis here in verses 7 through 9. Give to the Lord, verse 7. Give, O families of the peoples, give to the Lord glory and strength. Families here is more literally tribes. Uh, Now, no one can confer anything upon Yahweh who is totally self-sufficient within himself in every regard. However, as people, we can recognize his glorious attributes. And that's the sense here. In worship, we can ascribe to him glory and might, which uniquely belong to him alone. This is done by those who are true worshipers. David Jeremiah says, The goal of God's redemptive mission has always been to make obedient worshipers of all the nations of the earth. And that's who is being appealed to here. Now, the combination, I like that combination of obedient worshipers is descriptive of of true believers. In John 4, uh, Jesus said the Father is seeking for true worshipers. In Romans, Paul begins and ends the book by describing faith as the obedience of faith. And we read there, he talks about the Gentiles in in Romans 15, 18, 19. I will not, not dare speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. Isn't that an interesting way of phrase? We might phrase it in, in terms of bringing the Gentiles to faith, which is really what he's talking about. But he describes it in the sense of to make the Gentiles obedient. And remember, this is couched in the context of Romans, which begins and ends with the emphasis on the obedience of faith. He says, In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illicrum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So in making the Gentiles obedient, Paul is describing saving faith. They were brought to the obedience of faith. Thus, they were made obedient worshipers who ascribed to God glory and strength. Verse 8, Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. So giving the Lord the glory due His name is to acknowledge Him for who He is. The loving, holy, just, true, powerful God who has provided salvation for those who trust in Him. Again, the ESV study Bible says, The glory due His name is the respect and honor of God's character that He deserves. Notice it says bring an offering. Bringing an offering is indicative of true worship. In the Old Testament, uh, under the law, we had prescribed uh, appropriate offerings. Uh, In the kingdom, once again, appropriate uh, prescribed offerings and sacrifices will once again be presented to the Lord, as seen in Ezekiel 40 through 48. And we see this in other places as well. For example, in, in Psalm 72, the kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba... And Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. This is a kingdom context there. Well, today we also bring uh, offerings and spiritual sacrifices, not as uh, prescribed by the law, but in accordance with grace giving. Uh, Paul is very clear in 2 Corinthians 9 that uh, as we sow, we shall also reap. In Hebrews chapter 13... 
it says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. A spiritual sacrifice, as it were. And do not forget to do good and to share, giving. Uh, For with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So three times in verses 1 and 2, all the earth is told to sing to the Lord. And three times here in verses 7 and 8, the families of the earth are told to give the Lord the worship that is due Him. The great God of the Bible is worthy to be worshipped. And true believers, who are true worshippers, do that very thing. Verse 9, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. The beauty of the Lord's holiness calls for true worship. And true worship trembles before Him in His awesomeness that is overwhelming. Now, holy means to be set apart. The Lord's holiness is His absolute uniqueness, that which totally sets Him apart as completely distinct. There is no other like Him. Uh, I really love Isaiah 40 at this point. Uh, Verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? And then 25, To whom then will you liken me? God says. Or, To whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One, the set-apart one. David Gazik says, It is beautiful that God is God and not man. That he is more than just the greatest man or superman. His holy love, grace, justice, and majesty are beautiful. God has no equals, and therefore we are to tremble before him in worship. In Psalm 2, as the world is rebelling, we have this invitation at the end of the psalm, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, embrace Him, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. And then verse 10, uh, which is really a key verse in in this psalm. Say among the nations... The Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. This is the climax the psalm has been building towards. This declares the occasion for the new song as the Lord has come and now reigns supreme over all the nations. Believers study Bible. The latter part of this psalm should be interpreted messianically for the future judgment and sovereign rule spoken of here find fulfillment only in the universal reign of Christ. Warren Wiersbe says, The Lord reigns can also be translated, The Lord has become king, referring to the day Jesus will sit on David's throne and rule over the nations. And when the Lord comes to rule the world, it will be firmly established and not moved in the sense that there will be no more international chaos and upheaval. Uh, The entire world system will then be stable. Have you noticed it's not that stable today? Uh, The nations will no longer learn war, but rather beat their swords into plowshares, as it says in Micah uh, 4, 1 through 5, etc., other places too. In that day, the Lord shall set everything straight as he judges the people in righteousness. This verse answers to the cry of God's oppressed people down throughout world history who have consistently been abused by the world. That's been the experience of God's people. We've been the abused. 
The day is coming when God will right the wrongs and bring to pass what is just and right on the earth. And we look forward to that. And what's the response going to be? Verses 11 through 13. A celebration of joy. When the Lord comes to reign, it will usher in a time of celebration for all God's people. And for the whole of creation in a personified sense. Verse 11 and 12. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. The Lord reigns. Verse 10. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. These personifications of the heavens, the earth, the sea, the fields, and the trees all serve to illustrate that all creation will flourish when the Lord in righteousness reigns on the earth. At that time, the curse will largely be removed. I mean, in the eternal state, it's completely banished. But there is still some death in the kingdom, but it's largely removed. And it will be a time of celebratory rejoicing and gladness. What a picture is painted here. It's as though the whole of creation will break out in joyous celebration. This is the concept, by the way, portrayed also by Paul in Romans chapter 8, where he says, For the earnest expectation of the creation earnestly or eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. You know, it hasn't really quite been revealed exactly. We don't see uh, our glorified form yet. We don't see all that God has in store for us just yet. But it's coming. And he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So this glorious freedom that we are going to enjoy, uh, the whole of creation is going to share in this. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. You know what? It's breaking down. This whole world's breaking down. Uh, you say, well, I think we need to reverse some things. You stop driving your cars for crying out loud. That, that, that'll do it. Yeah, right. Uh, verse 13. For he is coming. He is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Now in verse 10, we see the Lord is coming to reign, which is cause for great joy. And in verse 10 and 13, we have a triple emphasis on the fact that he is coming to judge the world. And we see here, the basis for his judging will be his truth. He's going to align the world with his truth. Everybody's got ideas. We need to do this. We need that. How about aligning with truth, God's truth? Jesus Christ is truth. John MacArthur says, the rule of the Lord described in this psalm is not the present universal kingdom. I mean, God is always sovereign in that sense. But is that which will be established when Christ returns to the earth. And I believe that's, that's the case. So here's what uh, we're talking about. Um, we're talking about uh, the kingdom here. I think the second coming is going to usher in this golden age of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Of course, ultimately, that gives way to the eternal state. This is sometimes called the front porch of eternity, right? The millennial kingdom, the front porch. I like that. Uh, and then, of course, we have uh, the great white throne, new heaven, new earth in the eternal state. But I really think here's what we're talking about. 
Ray Comfort says, justice is sweet to the upright in heart. Uh, so is mercy. You know, I, I really hope uh, people turn to the Lord and, and get mercy instead of justice. But if they won't, if they reject God's mercy, they will get justice. He says, we are informed that the whole creation rejoices because God is going to judge the world with righteousness and truth. And they will. Uh, you know, when the great rebel system of this world, and it is so full of rebellion. And when this rebel system of the world called Babel, Babylon, uh, when it comes tumbling down, you know what heaven does? They break out in celebration. They're excited with the climactic high praise word, hallelujah, being brought forward at that time. We see it in the Psalms, this word hallelujah. It is a high praise word, but it's reserved in the, in the New Testament until we get to Revelation 19. And at that point, it, it's appropriate. It breaks out. And here's what we read in Revelation 19, 5 and 6. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. I intend to be here. In that multitude, if you're a believer, you'll be there too. I heard the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters. I mean, there's this deep roar. And there's a sound of mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Babylon has just come crumbling down. Chapter 18. And heaven gets excited with the hallelujah. Well, the world's value system... I think, is the polar opposite of God's truth. Uh, they claim to want fairness and righteousness, and boy, they've all got their causes. But really, most often, <laughs> when the flesh is driving it, and most often, all the time, really, uh, it's not according to God's standards. Uh, you know, it's, uh, for the world, it's all about wokeness right now. We talk about wokeness, uh, meaning they really pit the standards of the world their value system against really what is a biblical standard. Uh, for wokeness, it's really not about a person's personal character. Uh, it's rather about the tribe they hail from. Uh, we're going to treat people according to tribes here. Not, not just your character. Let, let's, not, let's, let's look at other things. Uh, it's not about justice being blind anymore, but now revolves around really reverse discrimination. It's not about biblical morality, but rather about championing perverseness, which is contrary to a Judeo-Christian ethic. And sadly, many professing Christians, perhaps naively sometimes, are part of this narrative. They seemingly want to make friends with the world, which the Bible plainly says is to be at enmity with God. You can't have it both ways. You're going to be friends with the world, or are you going to go with God? The world has always oppressed and persecuted true believers. And that, my friends, has not changed. And as we now live in the post-Christian era of our country, we're starting to feel it a little more as we go along. Well, our hope is always found in the Lord. And as we often say, and we've sung it a few times, right? We've read the back of the book. And we know how it ends. Uh, boy, if you put your hope in this life, uh, it's very short-lived, even at best. Our hope is found in Psalm 96, 
where in the end, the great God of the Bible is going to reign supreme and judge the world with his truth. He is coming to rule with a rod of iron. And so we proclaim the good news of his salvation and declare his glory among the nations. I mean, we're getting the word out. The world doesn't want to hear it. They're suppressing the truth. Oh, we don't want to hear it. Don't want but we're, we're getting it out anyway. We are his, his body, his eyes, his mouthpiece. So we're his messengers. We call the world to become true worshipers and tremble before him. Psalm 2. We say to the nations, the Lord is coming to reign and judge the world. Get ready. Isn't that what Paul says in Acts 17? Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men, all people, everywhere to repent. Well, why? Well, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Exactly what Psalm 96 says. And how is he going to do this? Well, he's going to do it by the man whom he has ordained. Which one is that? Well, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. How sure is it? It's just as sure as the resurrection. Indeed, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. And we say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.